0: my hooky the fold Duncan my guest this week on the fold is Anna Fifield, who is the editor of the Dominion Post, uh, which is the daily newspaper of um, poor Nikki Wellington and uh, uh, the capital of New Zealand and we record this in sort of early March. Um, Less than a week after the end of the the occupation of Parliament's ground, and they were the the local newsroom to that stuff. So officers are, you know, not very far away at all, and they were covering it pretty much all, all day and all night. And uh, so so, we we talk a bit about that, about the challenges of that, about where that that occupation came from. Um, no surprises. It's uh, you know it's in large part driven by Facebook and. And, uh, you know, the extent to which Anna's experience, because, you know, she is probably the most decorated New Zealand journalist uh, of the past 20 years or so. She's um, worked at the Financial Times for a long time, Washington Post for a long time. Uh, Beijing bureau chief, Tokyo bureau chief for, for the Washington Post uh, covered U.S. elections, just an absolutely, you know, been to North Korea a million times, wrote, literally wrote the book on it. This is, you know, an absolute line of international journalism. It's, it's extraordinary that she's in New Zealand, let alone doing a job as hard and important as editing the Dom Post. So we did talk about the challenges of running a newsroom, reporting on that, you know, but, Borderline unprecedented uh, situation down there. And then the second part, we talk about uh, the reason that I, I initially reached out to her was a column that she wrote about the challenges of getting information out of the public service. And it was a brilliantly written column, and full of sharp detail, and uh, it, it kind of, you know, it prompted a, a big response, not just from journalists, but I think from the public who sort of. You know I think it was a bit of a window into our, how we make the sausage and how hard it is at the at the moment um but uh she talked about that about you know the the response to it and and you know the in the actual constructive way she's working behind the scenes to try and basically strip back what she thinks is fundamentally an issue of a lack of trust or a breakdown in trust between government communications and the media, and honestly, it sounds like. Yeah, not only that, we're lucky to have Anna. Full stop. Um, but but she's doing really important work that will benefit both the government, uh, the public, and, and journalism overall. So, yeah. So as always, uh, the fold is brought to you uh, in association with Vodafone. Uh, we run on their network technology. You should too. Uh, head to vodafone.co.nz to find out more. This is Anna Fifield on the fold. Kia ora, Anna, and welcome to The Fold.
1: Uh, Kia ora, Duncan. What a treat to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: How are you all surviving down there? I mean, you're you're less than a week removed from being the, the local newsroom for the occupation.
1: Yeah, uh, well, we're all kind of a bit knackered and a bit recovering from the 23 days that were because it was a huge strain on our newsroom, given that we were having to staff it literally some days from 4:30 in the morning till midnight, uh, and we were staffing it in pairs as well. Everybody was going to the occupation in twos for their own safety, so it was a big, uh, a big stretch, but also kind of energizing to have this big, important news event right on our doorstep and to throw ourselves into covering all aspects of it.
0: I was going to say, it's, it's that weird tension, right, between, you know, there, there's something kind of terrifying about it, but there's also like this galvanizing sense of this is why we all got into the business. But it's interesting what you said about having to go down in pairs and, you know, the, obviously a sort of a, a new thing that hasn't really been a part of protests in New Zealand historically is that media were both covering this, but also the targets of a lot of the energy and attention, you know, have... Have you, not just within the protests, but, but just more broadly, have you sensed that kind of rise in animus towards the news media over the past year or two?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the kind of abuse I get in my inbox, um, often anonymous uh, from people uh, and also all the reporters as well, and especially young women reporters get called really, really vile names that I won't repeat here on this podcast. Um, but I think, yeah, there has definitely been this increase in animus being directed at us but we've seen that burst out into the open with the various protests that have been taking place um, around the country and in Wellington uh, over the past few months that really erupted with this occupation and the, you know, threats to um, harm or execute journalists, this kind of being likened to Nazi war criminals and things really took it to another level. And, yeah, our reporters did get um, roughed up, have their equipment destroyed, uh, be subject to really hateful, in person threats uh, there, so the the threat was very real for us.
0: I mean, what what is the impact on on your people when that happens? Because this is like. You know, I, I think there there are times particularly, you know, the protest was at pains to, or elements of the protest were at pains to present themselves as sort of peace and love. And it's like a, a sort of music festival that's gone on a bit long kind of thing. But what you're describing, the, the roughing up, destroying equipment, you know, and often journalists are, you know, they're, they're relatively young. They haven't yet been taken uh, by the comms communications industrial P- complex which we'll talk about shortly it's a very traumatic thing to to experience in the course of your working life
1: yeah yeah it is um- And they've kind of all dealt with it differently, and we've the the whole protest was a very fluid, moving uh, beast that it was. That um, you know, it started off very, very aggro, and then it did go through a phase when they seemed like they'd sent out a memo saying, "Let's be nice to everybody," and then obviously the aggro came back. Um, But also, you know, there were very disparate groups at that protest, so yes, there were a lot of mainstream mumfluencer type people there Uh, but there also was a hardcore of people who were very um, aggressive towards reporters. So it just involved being responsive and making calls on the day. But I always said to the reporters, safety first, uh, story second. And so everybody knew that they should follow their gut and pull back or come back to the office or take a break or do what they needed to because it was a kind of situation down there where things were very, um, very fluid on the ground.
0: With your background, you know re- reporting, you know from all, all over the world and, and you know zones which might be much hotter than that. Did, you know when you when you first returned to edit the the Dom Post, you know I'm sure that there were many things that drew you back, but it must be quite a surprise to see some of those the things that you you know that you found. In, in kind of hotter zones overseas occurring on your on your doorstep?
1: Yeah, we had a really weird kind of double-screen experience last week where the TVs in our newsroom had footage from Ukraine on them and then our computers had the live feed from Parliament. And I'm not equating them in any way, obviously. What's happening in Ukraine is very different from what's happening here. But the idea that we had to kind of look twice to see the fires, like which one was Wellington, which one was Mariupol or whatever. It was a very, very weird experience. Um, And I think my background in the US teaches me that we can't be complacent here, that thank goodness we don't have a kind of January 6th capital insurrection like they had. Thank goodness we haven't had five people gunned down in the newsroom like happened in Baltimore during the Trump administration and the whole enemy of the people kind of thing. But we can't be complacent, and that's what we've seen over the past few weeks, that there is this level of, um, of violence, of animus towards the media, and we have to be really on alert um, to the fact that this could explode and yeah, the people, our people could be in danger for doing their jobs.
0: One of the things which... I- I think is interesting about the organisation you work for is that it took a, a stand a couple of years ago to to eff- effectively kind of stop posting its work to Facebook. It resumed that in a very limited capacity earlier this year, but it seems to have, to have dropped off again. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it, I think it's one of the biggest newsrooms in the world to kind of take take such a stand. And, you know, every day it feels like we get more evidence that um having a conscientious objection to to Facebook is you know is actually not a you know that there is there is more and more kind of merit to it do do you sort of back up uh, that that decision by the executives and stuff and and do you see I guess, when you when you go through something like uh, the occupation, the extent to which Facebook serves as both a, a vector for and a feeder forum for even more nefarious places, that there is a problem here that needs addressing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did fully, that, that Facebook boycott decision happened before I joined the company, but that's part of the reason I joined stuff, you know, I thought that's a really a step in the right direction and shows the values that stuff is um, trying to live up to now. So I do think that it's a good decision to have made. Uh, I have gone through kind of phases of feeling like, are we making the disinformation, misinformation vacuum worse by not being there? Uh, on Facebook and on the place where so many New Zealanders get their news. Um, But having said that, you know, I usually kind of swing back around and and think I have no confidence that the Facebook algorithm would serve up our, for example, whole truth, fact-checking, myth-busting series to the people who need to read them. So uh, on the whole, yes, I think it is uh, still the right thing to do. But this whole experience of the occupation over the 23 days has really reinforced how siloed our media environment has become and how there are so many people who will um, get their information not just from facebook now but also from uh, media or, uh, you put use media and in inverted quotes outlets like counterspin that are really the um You know, the conspiracy theories, the worst of what we've seen happening in the United States have come here to New Zealand. So the big question, I think, is how we counteract uh, those kind of nefarious sites. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think the government really needs to look at Facebook and Google and these internet companies that are um, allowing or becoming a venue for this kind of misinformation and disinformation to be shared and what we can do or what New Zealand should do to regulate that or minimise that. Um, But also I think it's quite... Uh, interesting to see how. I mean, the government, Jacinda Ardern, was really praised at the beginning for her very clear communication strategy and how she succinctly told New Zealanders what we all needed to do for the public health of the country, um, and that her message became a bit muddied as the situation became more and more complex. And so we've seen so many people step into that vacuum in a way and take advantage of that using Facebook as their weapon. Um, thinking of people like Chantal Baker here, who's been live streaming throughout. And she has kind of stepped into that vacuum. So I think, yeah, there's a message for the government and how it conveys public health messages, but also a message about how, um, you know, what we should be doing to counteract the malevolent influence of Facebook, in particular, in New Zealand,
0: it's a really interesting and, and as you say, a complex one, right? Because, you know, and we're, we're about to talk about um, after the break about the, the, you know, that terrific piece you wrote and the series that you're running about the uh, increasing uh, difficulty of getting information out of of government uh, for journalists. But, you know, one of the things I think about with Facebook is that, you know. The, for a long time, people have said when when they're asked about something that they saw it on Facebook, which might mean that they saw it on a, through a stuff story that was shared on Facebook. It might be a friend's um, post about it. it, you know. And and you know, one of those things is is going to be fact checked and and you know, costly to to assemble, but but a a pretty reliable source. And another could be basically anything, and you know, I think for Facebook and trying to be all things to all people and the government's complete embrace of that, you know, from the prime minister's live streams due to, through to the way that every government department will have somewhere between a few and dozens of people for whom Facebook is the, you know, engaging with the public through Facebook is their sort of a huge part of their job that we have implicitly in, in so doing endorsed that as a platform while at the same time knowing that, you know, that there is this huge growth of, um yeah, you know, you know, misinformation, malinformation, disinformation—the whole information disorder complex—and it's all happening in the same place under the same brand. And that, you know, in some ways, you know, through through our taxes, through through the growth of this communication work, that we're we're sort of effectively financing the creation of content for a place that has no real guardrails about it. Uh, there's there's just something just unutterably complex about that, that it doesn't feel like we're yet addressing as a society.
1: Yeah, and the contradiction, I think, is um, illustrated very well by the fact that our Prime Minister led the Christchurch call after the mosque shootings of March 15th and took the strong stand against Facebook, yet she turns to Facebook very regularly, I don't know how many times a week, to do those Facebook Lives, and that that is a real um for her to deliver her message to people, and that seems quite, frankly, hypocritical to me uh, that she is using something that she sees has such a has had such a negative influence in our society. So yeah, it is very very complicated, but I think we need to try to figure out how to um, how to deal with this. And naturally, it comes no surprise to your listeners to hear that I hope that the New Zealand government would embark on the kind of um, drive that the Australian government. did to at least start to get these media companies to pay for their content that they are taking from or benefiting from from the spin-off and stuff and all these other New Zealand media companies and that that has made our challenge even more difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about the total quantum of, of resource that from any of our organisations that goes toward counteracting or, or um, you yeah, know, whether it's a work that, you know, facts or, or bad information that comes from Facebook or the kind of second order consequences like the occupation, it is increasingly a huge, it's not just a beat, but it's, it sort of spreads, spreads everywhere. Uh, we'll come back very shortly to to talk about the communications industrial complex and, and the challenges of that.
1: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: We're back now with with NFI Field, and uh, you know I've, I've wanted to speak to to you for for some time, but the the, the specific spur for this conversation was. Uh, a piece that you wrote for for I assume the Dominion Post published on stuff that's where I read it um, under the headline When did our public service get so arrogant? That was actually I think a day or two before the occupation and in some ways like it flamed bright and then seemed to sort of get get swept away by that enormous news event. But I don't think I think it deserves to be scrutinised on its own merits because. It's a very good piece of writing because it it gave a, a sort of a shape to something that I think a lot of New Zealand journalists could sort of feel was happening. But we, because it had happened slowly, but you know, by by a thousand cuts, uh, you know, for those who who had been living here, the fact that you had sort of, in some ways, parachuted into the New Zealand environment um, gave you a special perspective and force on it. But you also just detailed a, a, a number of incidents which collectively show the the sort of uh the the shape of it you know and and how it, how it's really impacting our our ability to do our jobs and and ultimately the public's ability to to find out things about you know the clues in the name that the, it's supposed to be the the public service do you want to tell tell me about what what you know what prompted that piece and and how you feel like this is different to what you've encountered in other societies, to which we feel like we, we're otherwise quite similar.
1: Yeah, um, I had this had been bothering me almost since I got home uh, eighteen months ago, and that I was really shocked to find how difficult it was to get information from the New Zealand public service, uh, from the government, from government departments, and that it compared very poorly to the New Zealand I remembered uh, when I left in the beginning of the year 2000, Um, but also my experience in working in lots of other democracies over those intervening 20 years. And, I mean, I'm not – I mean, there's also a very slick uh, communications set up at the White House, as you could imagine. Um, So I'm not pretending it was all, like, free for all, um, you know, Uh, A great situation over there It often was difficult too, but it was at least, you know, I could ask for an interview with somebody in the State Department or the White House or the Japanese Foreign Ministry or what have you. And there would be a reasonable chance that I could get it, that somebody would talk to me. Maybe they'd speak off the record or on background just to give me a flavour of uh, what their thinking was. But it was certainly much more possible uh, than here. And so it's really shocked me the number of times reporters within staff have made very reasonable requests to various government departments and just been given a flat no um, in a way that... Sometimes it is just obstruction. Like if you think about asking almost any question to the Ministry of Health, it's really hard to get an answer out of them. And this kind of default to the Official Information Act as the answer to everything. So, so many questions. Like there was one um, recently that one of our reporters in Christchurch asked to the Auckland DHB, how many full-time equivalent dermatologists do you have on staff? And the response that came back was, I've given you a hand by popping that through to the Official Information Act team so you don't have to. And I was just incredulous, like this is a number. This is just a very simple thing that you could give. Why is this going through the OIA process? And so you see this happening again and again where communications people just send everything to the OIA process so that you get uh, these OIA teams that are completely overwhelmed. It's ridiculous. Of course they can't deal with these increasingly expansive requests because that's the other thing. The media is putting in requests for everything, every text message, email, memo related to something because there's no trust that that government department will actually give the records. So it's gotten out of hand and there is this breakdown of trust, I think, in there. So partly I wanted to address that. um, But also, I mean, and that's a much bigger question of OAA reform and what needs to be done there. But I did want to kind of shine a light on the government initial response uh, to the very basic questions that we are asking so that readers understand that we are trying in many cases to ask these questions and just not getting an answer. Um, And then the second component of that was that it just really seemed to me to be um, anti-democratic in a way and not in... Anybody's interest, the government's interest or the public interest to have a lack of communication on so many of these issues. So, for example, when Nanaya Mahuta made her first trip abroad as foreign minister in November last year, she went to, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Qatar, uh, and the United States there was nothing uh, for the media surrounding that. I I was like messaging the foreign ministry at eight o'clock at night, asking for them to send me the photos that she'd tweeted from Indonesia. There was just nothing. And so I, I called them afterwards and said, you know, in Japan where I worked, if the Japanese foreign minister or prime minister was going to the US, they would have a briefing where the head of the America's division would set out what the uh, goals and, hopes for that trip were and that the media would be able to ask questions on background in a way that contributed to everybody's understanding of this so I was kind of frustrated that they weren't taking the opportunity to talk about New Zealand's foreign policy goals obviously I care a lot about foreign policy in particular given my (laughs) background Um, so poor old MFAT is on the receiving end of most of this from me Um, but it just seemed like such an own goal um, but I'm very happy to report that after, I I mean, I had some conversations behind the scenes and then I did write that uh, column to shine a light on this kind of stuff. Um, before Ninaya Mahuta's trip to Europe uh, this month, last month, uh, the foreign ministry did have a background briefing for reporters. And it was very factual and very informative. And it led to lots of stories just laying out what she was going to do in a way that's good for all of us. So. I hope that we can elicit some change.
0: I mean it's it's interesting right because I mean and that that's that's really positive to hear and I did want to ask whether the you know what the response had been because it was it was not a you know you can imagine these are there are thousands of people who are at work in communications with the government and this was not a particularly flattering portrait of them or their work. The the, the phrase that you use in there the the communications industrial complex the, and I think broadly what you're describing is a situation where the people who work in communications for the government have, you know, that they have massively exploded in number over the past couple of decades, just as the number of journalists has has shrunk. In fact, that's where a lot of the shrinking um, cadre of journalists has have gone. But instead of, you know, that being a, a situation where that provides more and more communication for, for the um, for the public or for journalists, it it, it almost feels like the 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 reverse is true. That the the intention is to find, you know, the the more people there are, the 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 greater a thicket that has to be, um, you know, run through to to actually get get information out. And I was wondering, you know, that that phrase, the communications industrial complex, what what does it mean to you? And and yeah, you know, how could how might it be reformed in a way that did better serve the uh, the public?
1: Yeah, I mean, I used that uh, phrase to yeah describe the fact that it has become so huge and so entrenched and does seem to be set up to be as obstructive as possible um, to journalists. And so I used that phrase, communications industrial complex, to try to get at the fact that this industry has become. so, so huge and as you say so many journalists have gone there you know that's where the jobs and the money increasingly have been um but it's set up in a way that seems not to yeah facilitate communication but to actively block it so to give you an example of something that we face all the time like say we want a piece of information about transmission gully from Waka Kotahi. Actually, this happens all the time. Uh, you know, we'll call the communications people and it will always be send in an email. And then we'll send an email and they'll send back some very bland anodyne response with no name attributed to it. And we'll call back and we'll say, you know, who can I attribute this to? Or can I actually talk to that person on the phone? And it's always, no, we've said what we need to say. Uh, increasingly, so this whole system of doing everything by email, of not having a chance to have back and forth has become really entrenched. And there's been really, as far as I can tell, very little pushback to it. And so that's partly what I wanted to do, because it's not just about being able to ask the gotcha questions or whatever. It's not doesn't have to be confrontational a lot of the time. You know, these things, whether it's on Transmission Gully or three waters reform or something, they're really complex. And journalists are generalists. You know, we don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of um, building an expressway. So just the ability to be able to have a conversation, a back and forth, and to ask follow-up with questions with somebody is really useful. But this whole system has set up where the answer is always no, you can't talk to anybody. So that's what I wanted to, to highlight in this piece because I think that it is doing the nation a disservice um, because, yeah, we don't have the ability. You know, the media, we are in the middle. We are supposed to be able to ask questions and to hold them to account but also to be responsive to the questions of the public.
0: I mean, what, and one thing you debuted at the bottom of that and I think that you've kept doing is, is this uh, column called Things We Didn't Learn This Week, which, you know, I think almost shows the um, the absurd gap between the kinds of questions, very you know, and often they're not particularly controversial questions they're just things that the public or a journalist would want to know to help be able to to properly articulate what's happening somewhere and they're just complete bland um obfuscations that you that you get in response you know ha- how have you found that the fact of just making that that stuff which was hitherto um you know that that was our sort of inside baseball type stuff but making it public and as as a way of you know, uh, shining a light on the, um, on, on the, you know, how, how hard it is to, to, to do jobs that are already pretty difficult resource wise. Have, have you found that that's, that's elicited any emotion on this?
1: You can say shaming, Duncan, it's all right. I, I think of... it should be shaming,
0: you know, that's what we talked about <laughs> off here. but I'm like, come on, it should be like mortifying to someone who's on a very good salary to be like, oh, this is what, this is how I answered this question, you know, that, that, that yeah, I think it should be modifying to people
1: yeah and I think it is I mean I think it's having its desired impact in many ways and that yeah we want to show that we are asking questions and that we are not getting any answers or just to show the complete inadequacy of inadequacy of the answers in so many cases and um, because yeah, it's really shocking that very basic questions get referred through the OAA process or get some completely tangential non-answer or get no answer at all. Um, so the feedback has been really interesting and that I've discovered that people really hate being included in that list. So we've had objections to it without them providing the real answers. Um, we have had people suddenly come up with the answers after being in that column, uh, But also, really interestingly, some people I know who work in government communications have been really horrified to see the kind of answers that their colleagues or, you know, counterparts in other departments are giving. So I think that this is... Um, turning on some lights as well inside government departments too to see what kind of non-answers other places are are putting up with, uh, you know, giving back to us. So, I mean, this is the start of a process, I think. I did want to try to push back and to show uh, how the system has become entrenched and that we're not going to put up with it anymore. I mean, one other thing we've been doing in my team is refusing to take unattributed comments, um, that things should not come out with just a government spokesperson, a ministry spokesperson. Um, that's their job. Their job is to talk to the media. And so they should be accountable and should be putting their name to it. And if they don't want their name to it, they should be finding someone else in the organisation who does. Because this... Um, Yeah, lack of accountability is really galling. So yeah, I hope it is having, uh, having, making an impact. And I should say as well that I am also doing quite a lot of work behind the scenes to hopefully be constructive and to talk about ways that we can, um, improve the system for everybody's benefit. Because I think it is really a lot down to this lack of trust that, um, you know, media in New Zealand has you know, not covered itself in glory all the times. There have been lots of pieces of really sensationalist clickbait gotcha journalism um, and that I understand why some people feel burned by that. Uh, But I also understand why journalists have no faith in the, communications industrial complex to serve them up answers or to give them anything but the very bare minimum on this. So I think a lot of this has to do with this lack of trust and how we overcome that and reset that. So I'm having lots of conversations behind the scenes that I hope will be um, beneficial, not just for stuff but for
0: all of us. That's yeah, that is very gratifying, and it's interesting you say that. You know that there is, you know, this isn't just purely the, the fault of government. There is a sense that, you know, we have as an industry indulged in, you know, sensationalism at, at various times. And um, I think my my sense as someone who's worked in it and observed it over the years is that that's diminishing. Um, that some of that was a product of particular editorial cultures, or, you know, even the, the sort of Incentives around clickbait, which are sort of slightly um, changed now, and where where reader revenue has grown in its importance. One one thing that you mentioned in there, which I sort of um, was was curious about, was the extent to which there was a deferral to the prime minister's office, um, and that in some ways, while it didn't have the, it wasn't referred to in the same name. You know, historically there was a you know, John Key talked about no surprises, which I think actually went back into. Earlier, um, I think that's a Helen
1: Clark era thing. I think it
0: might be a Helen Clark thing that he that he kept running with. But you know, to what extent is the are these cultures actually driven top down uh, in in your sort of thinking or understanding?
1: Yeah, just to pick up on your first point, I think you're right. I think it is diminishing the sensationalism. You know, not in all corners of the media, but I think. Well, obviously, I'm biased, but I know in stuff we are trying really hard to move away from that. Um, So it's frustrating, and I get a lot of emails acknowledging that, saying that we, you know, people can see we're trying to do better. So it's frustrating that there's not a the more goodwill there or more recognition of that, and the fact that we have turned a mirror on ourselves. And I'm just asking the government to do the same, like communications industry to do the same with that. Um, In terms of, you know, the top-down part of it, I think it's very, very much the case. I think it did start with... Helen Clark and, you know, her being a minister of everything and completely across her whole brief um, and so running this tight shop there as well as yeah, introducing this no surprises policy where she wanted to know if anything was going to come out of a ministry or a government agency. She, you know, she wanted her office to know about that and not be surprised when they pick up the paper in the morning. Um, And that has continued... And, yeah, so partly it is It is that. I think things get forwarded to the Prime Minister's office, but there's a big difference between advising them, you know, something's going to come out, it's not very flattering to us, here's what we've done to mitigate it, blah, 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 the things you would expect. And what I see as a culture, I mean, I wasn't here during the Helen Clark years or the John Key years, so I can't compare with that, Um but what I see is a culture where everything needs to go through the Prime Minister's office for permission. You know, the Prime Minister is a master of communication. You know, she's very effective. She knows how to um, hit the right tone with things. And it just seems to me that she's very, very much in control of the message across the board and wants to be in control. So, I mean, I wrote in that column about my experiences of being a Washington Post correspondent and asking for interviews in the government and everything came back with, we just have to check with the Prime Minister's office. Pretty basic uh, requests as well. So that really reinforced to me how much um, uh, control of the message has been centralised in uh, in at least this government. I, I As I said, I don't have experience of the other ones, but it's striking to me how that's happened and how that inevitably slows down the whole process if it has to go through all that extra bureaucracy.
0: And I mean, you know, you're, you're editor of the, the Dominion Post, which is that's the Capital City's daily newspaper. And this is, in some ways, it's a, a company town and the, and the company is the government, um, which means that this this naturally impacts your newsroom probably more so than, than any other in the country you know in terms of the you know zooming out a bit what what was it about the job of of editing this um you know hugely important historically important newspaper um that that attracted you and and you know has has what you found matched up to what you anticipated going into it?
1: Yeah. um, Well, this all goes back to 2020, uh, which wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just the pandemic for me, but I was based in China, working for the Washington Post, during the Trump administration, uh, during China's increasing um, turn towards authoritarianism. So that was becoming increasingly impossible. You know, everybody I knew was getting expelled or detained, and I... Um, didn't want to be <laughs> detained as a, you know, solo parent in China in a pandemic far away from my uh, from my family. So I decided that I was going to leave um, and I'd always thought I'd go back to Washington, but it was just at that time when uh, you know, Sinead Boucher had bought stuff and I thought that was a really bold and exciting move and I just suddenly thought, I want to be, you know, having been far away from my audience for so many years, I wanted to be close all of a sudden. I wanted that proximity to the people I was working for, you know, writing for, and that accountability of being part of a community. Uh, and so that plus Sinead buying stuff, plus the Trump administration and not wanting to return to that toxic environment, like the universe just told me it's time to go home. So... It was a pretty big call to leave Jeff Bezos for Sinead Boucher, um, but, but I did it and I don't regret it at all. Um, I really wanted to be part of this rejuvenation and it has been really exciting. I mean, it's challenging working in a New Zealand media environment with the resourcing constraints that we have compared to um, what it was like at the Washington Post. But I think there's a real sense of mission um, within like within the company, within our team, um, to do better and to, you know, that journalism is more important than ever. I think the pandemic has shown us that journalism can be a life and death matter. Uh, you know, if you're suddenly reporting that you should be drinking bleach and don't worry about wearing a mask, you know, that's a public health risk. That is an existential um Matter so I think yeah I wanted to come home and be part of this rejuvenation and so far so good uh, I've got this team of very energetic people with that sense of mission um, who don't want to be part of the communications industrial complex but want to be part of this pillar of democracy so it's great I'm loving it
0: uh, well it's uh, it's great to ha- to have you here um, just as an observer and you know like the that impact you're having on. Uh, government comms alone is uh, is is pretty spectacular so yeah th- thank i'll let you get back to doing that very important job but thanks mm-hmm. so much for joining me on the fold today anna
1: oh well, thank you so much duncan um it's been great but also i just want to give a shout out to the spinoff which i am a you know avid reader of i love what you're doing and i love the voice and the audience that you have in new zealand and so i keep saying it all these talks and things you know, journalism costs money. You know, it would be great if you could give to stuff, but also please give to the spin-off and other places around there who, you know, clickbait is cheap, real journalism costs money. So, um, so a huge Kyoto to you and your Mahi at the spin off.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's 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 true. But um I I know and I also like that there's a collegiality where we can kind of <laughs> admire one another's work and, and not be whatever the old ways of just pretending we don't exist. It's it's, it's cool. Thanks, Anna.
1: Thanks, Duncan. Kakite.
0: That was Anna Field on The Fold. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. Um, my thanks to Te Ahe Butler for recording and editing this one. Uh, to Jane Yee for setting it up uh, and running the Spinoff Podcast Network. The Spinoff members for... You know, as, as Anna suggested there like the, the fact of um, those really contributions are just you can't do, do, do journalism without them uh, anymore I don't think uh, certainly not for, for stuff or, or the spin off so we really really appreciate that. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast uh, please uh, rate us and review us on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and uh, that's all from me see you next week Kia ora e iwi, Butler here, podcast manager at the Spin Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our Mahi by signing up to become a Spin Off member at thespinoff.co.nz Spin Donate. The Spin Off Podcast Network.